The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story-slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. He could hear the old fellow's secret treasure, not with his ears, but with his bones. A steady, low hum. Like the rose, that hum conveyed a sense of power. But it was like the rose in no other way. This hum spoke of colossal emptiness. A void like the one they had all sensed behind the surface reality of Todash, New York. A void that could become a voice. Yes, this is what took us, he thought. It took us to New York. One New York of many, according to Callahan's story. But it could take us anywhere or anywhen. It could take us... Or it could fling us. He remembered the conclusion of his long palaver with Walter in the place of the bones. He had gone Todash then, too. He understood that now. And there had been a sense of growing, of swelling, until he had bigger than the earth, the stars, the very universe itself. That power was here, in this room. And he was afraid of it. Welcome back, fellow travelers on the path of the beam. Derek is here with his amazing co-host, Steve, coming at you, not live. I was going to say live, but that's not correct. (laughs) Coming at you through the internet with the next episode of Wheel of Ka. This is part one of a two-part discussion on Wolves of the Kala. We just read approximately 50% of the first, first book, wow, of book Five Wolves right. of the Kala. So we read half of book five. Um, I am bursting out of the seams with excitement oh, to talk about this. Oh, yeah. Um, so am I. So, Steve, man, how you feeling? Good. Good. You know, admittedly, I've been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption 2 and making the choices of, of the main character as if he were Roland. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's been like leading up to the episode I've been playing and just trying to get into that mentality. And... uh but other than that, you've been role playing as Roland uh, yeah. in Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I have to play that game. Then. Oh, you should. It's great. It's yeah, a maybe lot of fun. I should. Yeah, that sounds amazing. But yeah, so hit other me than, up, man. I mean, yeah. Other than that, pretty good. Making some music recently and getting some gigs and doing some things. And I'm really excited to talk about this book. I know when we had last talked, or, or previously in another episode, this is your favorite book. And is that still the case so far? I am. I'm reserving that judgment till the for end. the final That's episode at the end to say which one's my favorite. Oh, yeah, sure. I, I don't think I can call it now. But what I can say for certainty, the first time I read this series, Wolves of the Kala was my favorite book. Right. By far, it was actually easy for me mm-hmm. to name it my favorite. Will that be the same this time? I do not know. Sure. I can tell you... I devoured the first half of this book so vociferously, so enthusiastically. Yes. I this to me was like the mental imagination of myself eating beautiful chocolate cake. Okay. That's how much I enjoyed it. It was chocolate cake to my imagination. Yeah, okay. And I actually got so far ahead in the reading, I had to slow down because I probably could have finished the entire book. <laughs> I had to slow down because I'm like, I can't get too far ahead. Sure. Which in all of the Wheel of Cause that we've done, 
it has been a scheduling nightmare to try to get to where I need to be sure. in order for us to have the episode we need to have because this is my second podcast. I have right. The Midnight Myth, which right. presents Wheel of Ka. Then I have The Wheel of Ka. Plus, I have my job and my home and all my non-podcast-relating responsibilities. Oh, you mean life. Yes. <laughs> Plus, I have my life. Uh-huh. And it's always been tough for me to get to the stopping point before we record. This one was the complete opposite. No, I, I remember. Well, you had a long plane ride. So in, in fairness, you had a lot of time to get to I it. had a five-hour session where I just sat and read the book. It's really interesting. This one, for me, was the one where, well, really, it was the wind through the keyhole. But this one, again, it was hard in my schedule to be able to put 50 to 75 pages a day and just kind of blow through it. So I will admit, you know, I finished up until the point like three hours before we recorded this, <laughs> which is well okay. That's which totally is okay. Fu- it got really done. Fine. We're there. Yeah. I admit it. I'm okay with this. No judgments. No judgments at all. Um, before we get too deep in it, a few things that I just have to say, some announcements. I'm going to get this done early. I'm going to do this correctly. So Wheel of Cough fans were presented by The Midnight Myth, the weekly podcast that Laurel and I um, produce. If you're fans of it, please go to iTunes, give us a ratings or review. You could go to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There you can buy amazing merch, including Dark Tower Wheel of Coffee yes. merch, which is really awesome. If you tweet us a picture of your merch, we'll be sure to mention you at the next Wheel of Ka. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. Follow us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. A lot of good conversation happening there. Midnight Myth podcast for Facebook or Instagram. And we have a Patreon on our website. Please support us on Patreon. To our Patreon supporters, I fucking love you. And what else? We are going to be doing, uh, Laurel and I, we're going to be doing a few partnerships coming up. One is going to be with the podcast Verbal Diorama, Mm. where the host, M is going to be a guest on our podcast. If you like Wheel of Ka, if you like The Midnight Myth, you like engaging with media on a critical level. So M does an amazing job with her podcast, and we cannot wait to have her on The Midnight Myth. Another thing, we're doing a partnership with a YouTube channel. More on that later because I don't have all the details and I don't want to fuck it up. (laughs) But there's a really amazing YouTube channel that hunts down and finds rare Funko Pops. And we're going to be doing a Funko Pop giveaway in conjunction with them. However, Laurel knows all the details, so more (laughs) on that to come. That's all the news. Let's get to the Wheel of Ka show. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, I mean, why don't we... So I'm going to ask the question this time uh, because we have to start off this way. This is tradition. What do you think the tower represents in the Wolves of the Kala? Yeah, great question. To me, the tower is still a very tactile and real place. Mm -hmm. We have learned that there is a version piece part of the tower called the Rose living in New York. Now, we learned that um, when Jake gets drawn into Midworld, and we sense the power of the Rose, but in the first half of Wolves of the Kala, we learned that the Rose is as important to the Tower as the Tower is to the Rose. Right. They're one and the same. Yeah, absolutely. And if the Rose should fall, so should the Tower. So now that we have this physical manifestation of the Tower in a version of New York that is equally important to the Tower then uh, the rose and the tower, they are, like they are. They're one and the same. So it's equally as important for them to preserve the rose, pardon me, than it is as them to fight for the tower. Right. We now have a very physical, very real, and the quest has a 
like a ticking clock. Mm -hmm. We learn that Calvin Tower, who owns the bookstore where Jake got the book about Blaine the Mono and the Book of Riddles, Mm -hmm. actually owns the vacant lot where the Rose is. And there are Balazar, the gangsters that Roland and Eddie kill in the very, um, the very first, the second book, Mm -hmm. are there pressuring Calvin Tower to sell this property to this anonymous evil corporation. The Sombra Corporation. Who presumably want to destroy the Rose because they want to destroy the tower. Right. And they realize that temporally, because time works differently depending where they are in this multiverse, that they have X amount of time to stop this sale from going through where they need to themselves buy this plot of land to protect the tower. So there's this ticking clock. We need to save the Rose as the first step to saving the tower. So it's very tactile. It's very real. It's a physical place. It's not a metaphor in the way it was in the first book where Mm -hmm. the tower is just this elusive thing. It doesn't feel as much of a MacGuffin in other words to me. Sure. No, I, I don't How about think you. Well, I, it's 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 funny as I do also see it as tactile and definite, but I also see it in this book as a nightmare, a bit of a nightmare. We Go on. We, well, we start to think about <clears throat> the tower as a destination, but the thing that Roland fears the most is actually getting to the tower. He's not scared of the journey. He's not afraid of bringing people along and. And, and, and sacrificing a child and, and giving up the rest of his quartet throughout this process. But when he sees that rose for the first time in the lot, I mean, he falls to his knees. He's, he's sobbing. I mean, he is petrified of the tower. And I got to be honest, I am starting to get more and more afraid of the tower as we read along because it's becoming more and more tangible. The closer that we get to the tower, the more afraid, the more stressed I feel actually as I read it because I'm starting to realize, you know, no, trying to keep separate what we already know from reading the series, I'm starting to realize the seriousness, the, 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 the trials and tribulations that not only have come to these characters, but what they're still going to go through. I mean, even in this book, so so it does. It reminds me a bit of a, it's a destination of a nightmare. Interesting point. Roland fears the tower. He also fears what he's willing to do. To get there. On his way to the tower. Mm. We've called out in previous books many different lines in which Roland's just like, if I become a monster in the pursuit of the tower, have I compromised too much? And I, it's a way that you call it a nightmare that I think is interesting language. Roland fears the tower in the way that we fear a nightmare. But I also think Roland may fear the tower because he fears the end of the journey. Oh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And it, in that way, it is somewhat resonant to death in that he fears the end, the finality. He fears what he will do to fight and get to this tower. And then when he gets there, it is the end. Right. If the end does not justify the means, then it is just a very long multi-dimensional, temporally shifting, terrible existence right? where everyone and everything he ever cared about was destroyed in pursuit of this goal. right? And I do think you're right. It is a bit of a nightmare. There is some element of fear happening in the bravest character. Well, and also just the way, you know, Stephen King starts to pepper his version of horror throughout this. I, I always feel that the tower is that ominous thing 
that keeps that horror around. And, and, and like I said, the more that we read, you know, we'll talk about vampires coming up here and, and, and we're starting to get into more supernatural. There's Walking Dead. There are things where you're starting to get classic Stephen King. We're starting to get him and characters from other books are now starting to come into the fold, which is really, really interesting. Now we're going to start seeing how the tower connects all of Stephen King's novels. Yeah. So let's let's just do a little bit of a recap of where we are. Sure. So people reading along know where we stopped. Mm-hmm. So this book opens up with the Jaffords. They are uh, one of the, the main farmer of the Jaffords is using, strangely, a root human being to try to plow a field called Son of a Bitch, an ungrowable field full of rocks, and in it comes in a robot named Andy who tells this Jaffords that the wolves are coming and he has had enough and wants to stand. We then come to learn that in this place, Calabrin Sturges at Endworld on the border of Thunderclap, that there is a um, thriving community where once every 20 years or so, because time is funny and no one really knows, there come these beings called the wolves. They wear wolf masks. They have gray horses. They have green cloaks, kind of like Dr. Doom. Doom. They wield light snabers and deadly golden snitches. And they come in, they kill anyone that stands in their way. And for every family that has a twin, they take one of the twins who come back about a month later, Root. Root means that they have become simpletons. They have become um, unable to care for themselves. They do not grow until they hit a terrible growth spurt over a short period of time, they, they become these great hulking giants. They tend to die young. In the Kala, we see that Jaffords is trying to convince all of the other Kala folk it's time to fight against the wolves, and he's losing the argument until Per Callahan, Per, which is a word that I think means father, yeah. who is a priest with a scar of a cross on his head, lets everyone know in the g- gathering hall that three gunslingers are on their way to the Kala. Then we get to the actual quartet, Eddie, Susanna, Oi, Jake, um, and Roland, obviously, who have these mysterious nightmares called Todash, where they go into a New York where they're sort of in between worlds. There are spirits walking, and they are able to interact with New York, kind of. They end up seeing uh, Calvin Tower. They end up seeing a sign that has Stephen King written on it, our first reference that Stephen King is actually in this story. Right. And they realize that they have to save the Rose. And this is where they meet Per Callahan, who convinces them to come to the Kala and to help them fight the wolves. Now they're in the Kala. Roland is trying to investigate the Kala folk. He has learned that Susanna has this dangerous other named Mia, who sneaks off at night in these sort of delusion dreams where Mia is in a great feasting hall trying to feed her unborn baby where Susanna is actually eating and hunting and killing live animals. Um, In this, we see this great feast where Roland dances a dance called the Kamala, and Roland is trying to gather all of the information about the wolves when they realize Per Callahan has a piece of the Merlin's (sighs) rainbow called Black 13, which is responsible for sending them Todash. That's the worst of of the 13. An evil piece of the Merlin's rainbow and Todash is that state where you're in another world and in between it. Um, we get a few additional stories. We get to learn about Per Callahan, who's originally a Stephen King character from the book Salem's Lot. Yep. We learn about him fighting the vampire Barlow and failing, and him living as a vampire hunter where the in this nexus where all of the different versions of America are slipping. And he exists in these hobo highways. He's a horrible alcoholic killing vampires. 
We learn from the Eisenharts, another very famous, or pardon me, successful ranching family, that the Eisenharts are, the Lady Eisenhart practices a religion, cult, hero worship of Lady Oriza, where they are specialized in throwing these amazingly deadly sharp plates with pinpoint fucking accuracy. Other fun things, Jake has become friends with a kid and is actually acting like a kid, which allows Roland to not trust him because he can't trust him if he's a kid. And we also learn a little bit about Pear, or pardon me, Grand Pear Jaffords, who when he was a kid, he hunted down and fought the wolves, which everyone died but him. At the end of this, where we're at, it's just at this point where Roland realizes because he can't trust Susanna, who has Mia, he can't trust Eddie because Eddie might tell something to Susanna, who might trust Mia, and he can't trust Jake because Jake has become friends with Benny Sleitman, and he might tell Benny Sleitman something that all of his plans to defend the Kala, to take possession of Black 13, to use Black 13 to go toe dash and try to save the Rose is 100% on him, and he is isolated and alone. So, yeah. That's that. That's, that's the quick that's, recap. Yeah, that is the quickest recap we could get, because <laughs> a lot happens. A, a lot happens. I probably left some shit out. Well, I mean, maybe, but, you know, yeah. we're not here, Derek, to tell people the story, are we? No. No. We're here to analyze it. But we felt it was important because so much right. happens in the first half of this book kind of summarize and also let people know where we stopped. So where do we start? I mean, should we start with Callahan? I mean, he's, uh, to me, he's one of the biggest parts of, of the first half of the book. Yeah. So let's, let's talk some Callahan. Right. So you've got Callahan who again comes from Salem's lot, uh, which is one of Stephen King's first vampire stories. If, if anyone knows it, we're not even going to talk about it, but read it. It's a great book. Uh, it's a really old dated movie, but it's also pretty good. And just putting myself on blast. I haven't read Salem's lot. That's okay. That's all right. He uh, has been in the Cala for 19 years. I believe is what he says. Yeah. It's tough because time is funny. No one really knows. Right. So he thinks it's about 19 years. He's built a church. Everyone knows him. Right. And like (laughs) everybody kind of coyly respects you know, Christianity, but not really. No one really believes in it, but he really pushes it. There are a few Christians. There are a few Christians. There are. A few keep the man Jesus. Right. Right. And he spends a lot of the first part of this book, when we first come in, you know, he and his group are following the Katet, uh, you know, leading up to the Kala. And, and the Katet knows this. And then we get to the Kala, we meet Callahan, we realize that he's not really an authority figure within the community, but he does hold some sort of weight. And he also doesn't give a shit. He's a straight talker. He's a straight shooter. He's an old man at this point in, in our time. You know, he's not the oldest. Jamie Jaffers is the oldest in the, in the Kala. But we hear the story of Barlow, who is the, you know, this type one vampire. He explains to us about the three types of vampires, type one, type two, and type three, which I think is wild. It's, type, um, it's amazing. I mean, your type ones are your Draculas, you know, the ones that when they bite you, they're going to spawn more vampires. Your type twos are... Uh, Funny enough, the most useless, they, they, they're basically just slugs. They just feed. They're and zombies. Then, they're zombies. Yeah. Right, yeah, right, right. And then type three is we are the ones that sustain ourselves through humans sucking our blood, which I think is wild. And, yeah. and, and you know, it's so, so we learn about his version of the vampire. And the thing I want to talk most about Callahan is this idea of your battle with 
addiction and your loss of faith. Because the thing that constantly comes up with him is, number one, he's a raging alcoholic um, and who, who has no problem speaking about it or talking about it or, or indulging in it, especially during the times where he's recounting his story. And this idea of a loss of faith, you know. So which one do you want to start with? Yeah, let's, let's dive into, I mean, you just had a lot, laid it all out there. Let's dive into, I would say, loss of faith. Right. Because clearly when we are first introduced to Callahan in this book, he has regained his faith. The people of Calabrin Sturges, which many do not support the man Jesus, but they respect him as a holy man. They respect him as a member of the community. Some people do keep the man Jesus, so some are going to his church, and people admit that there's a little bit of power. I think religion is a big theme in this book, with one of the main characters being a priest. I know Absolutely. that's a little no-duh right well, there, sure, of course. But, but religion is a big theme. So there are a few different religions that we get exposed to in the Cala. There's primarily three I want to call out. First is Callahan's sort of, I'd call, rogue uh, Catholicism. It's not Catholicism because there's no Catholic church here. It's just one lone preacher. But he keeps to Catholicism, and he tries to practice in a Catholic way. Uh, two, there are the Manny folk, who I think are the beings who worship the multiverse, is the way I look at them. That they are very uh, removed from society. They're very mysterious. They're like a mist Greek mystery cult meets an ancient Greek mystery cult meets a Buddhist monk. Yeah, they they remind me of a druid, right? And then you have the the practicers of the practicers, pardon me, of Lady Oriza, who some just look at her as a folk hero, some look at her as a legend, others worship her as a goddess. And throughout all of the Dark Tower series, there's always mentions of gods. But very rarely do the gods or goddesses get names. This is the first time we get one of those names, Lady Oriza. Circling back then to Per Callahan and his loss of faith, he stares down a vampire, and his faith is so pure and true that the cross glows, mm -hmm. and he loses the battle. And that loss to Barlow results in him having to drink some of Barlow's blood, and that taste of Barlow's blood in his mouth allows him to see other vampires, Ugh. but also never leaves. That's gross. And he was already an alcoholic at this point. Right, and now he's trying to drown the taste of mud and bile and, and guts. It's important to note that when he first goes to New York in his backstory, he stops drinking for a long period of time right. while he's working at home. Home is a wet alcohol rehab facility. When you are at your lowest of your low, you go to home, you can get a meal and a shot of whiskey because alcohol withdrawal can kill you. If you are an alcoholic and stop drinking, it's deadly. You need to detox. And home is a place where they can let people down off alcohol slowly by feeding them a shot of whiskey here, a shot of whiskey there. And during this period, he doesn't drink until he starts encountering the vampires. Right. And his friend slash romantic interest mm -hmm. um, gets bitten by a vampire and from that bite contracts AIDS and dies. Mm -hmm. That spirals him out of control. So all of this to say, he is a man of faith without a church, without a flock, without a mission. And the only thing that he can grapple onto 
in order to sustain himself in this fucked up universe that Barlow put him into is being an alcoholic and killing vampires when he can. Mm -hmm. And that's the only two things that sustain him. He goes from town to town, place to place, working till he has enough money to drink, then drinking and killing vampires. Right. And then when he gets to the Kala, he does have a new sense of purpose. He finds a new community. He finds people who need to be protected, you know, because he, he sees the wolves as a threat and wants to abolish that threat wants to make sure that the townspeople stay safe. And I, I don't believe in the 19 years that he's been at the Kala, he's been drinking at all either. I get the sense that he's bone dry. Yeah, I think so yeah, too. I get the sense that he has not had a sip of alcohol at the feast. He doesn't drink any when right. everyone has, even Eddie has a few drinks and Eddie's also an addict, right? You know, but Cala or a pair Callahan, part of me does not drink at all. And I think there's something special to the vampires and the Catholicism aspect of it, because both vampires and Catholicism have a unique sort of sanguine connection, if you get my pun. Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're both about blood. Right. So a Catholic priest, what separates a Catholic priest from an astout, studious Catholic, just worshiper or follower, is that the Catholic priest has the, has the power of transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. It's a big word, but they can transubstantiate the sacrament wine into the blood of Christ during Holy Communion. In other words, there's an aspect of recreating literally the blood of Christ as a way to drink it to gain life. Now, this is not to offend any Catholic listeners, but what does a vampire do but drink blood to sustain their own life? Right. Now, this idea is actually pretty ancient. Laurel and I did a midnight myth about vampires. We can go back to that. Any listeners of Wheel of Coffee want to hear more? But essentially, there have always been beliefs in every culture that there are creatures who can consume the blood of humans to sustain their own life. And these are always manifested as a type of vampire. So what does Callahan have to come up against? What's his enemy? The blood-sucking vampires. In other words, the perverse um, transubstantiation, the unholy communion, doing this as a way to take life rather than reaffirm life. And it makes sense that he has to fight these creatures in this book, you know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they're his plight. Absolutely, 100%. And I think it is the first segue to him really regaining his faith. I read these, like, the Callahan backstory up to this point, because we've only gotten half of it so far in the book, Right. right? Right. But I read this as, you know, one thing that's interesting, for an alcoholic, he spends an awful lot of time sober, right? He spends four or five days sober. Sure four or five days drunk, right? Right, Which is not healthy and good, but he knows how to control it when he needs to control it. And during this, this, this period of his life, he's also fighting and doing such a good job killing vampires. He gets on the radar of these weird, mysterious agents called the low men. Mm. And he gets on the agents of these more sinister things than vampires who start to hunt him because he's doing such a good job. So I think we are seeing even, I think his lowest point in terms of faith is with Barlow and losing the fight with Barlow and slowly, but surely I feel like we're seeing him chip a little closer and a little closer to faith. Sure. I think it's a great point. 
And, you know, the other piece that I wanted to talk about with Callahan is, you know, the characters in the book talk a lot about whether or not he's part of the quartet because they have both gone Todash in New York. I mean, obviously, Callahan is from New York. 1983 is when he comes through. So he's from a different where or a different when. But do you think that he's part of the quartet? I, I personally, in the first half of the book, it's hard to say a solid yes or no, because we don't know yet, right? I mean, he's, he's definitely been the closest figure to the quartet so far in the Kala, giving them intimate information, sharing his story, giving his background, sharing the, the similarities between their stories and being able to function. So I don't know if I can say a definite yes or no on my end. I know how I feel. I well, want to save it. But let me, let me ask you this. Sure. What does it mean to be a quartet? It means from one men or from many one, right? Right. And what one thing that Eddie discusses when he first realizes that the pair comes to him and the pair starts telling him the story and Roland starts telling pair that like, we don't care what a bunch of farmers say. If we decide that Kala can be defended, we defend it. Right. If we decide that it doesn't get worthy of defense, it doesn't get defended. Eddie starts thinking uh, that like, Hey, this is a mistake to think that these gunslingers can save them. They're not the cavalry. And then I'm going to quote from the book, but no, no, Eddie had known who they were since river crossing. When the old people had knelt in the street to Roland, hell, he'd known since the woods, what he still thought of as Shardick's woods, where Roland had taught them to aim with the eye, shoot with the mind, kill with the heart. Not three, not four, one. That Roland should finish them so, complete them so, was horrible. He was filled with poison and had kissed them with his poison lips. He had made them gunslingers. And had Eddie really thought there was no work left for the line of Arthur Eld in this mostly empty and hussed out world that would simply be allowed to toddle along the path of the beam until they got to Roland's dark tower and fix whatever was wrong there? Well, guess again. I like to point out that quote because one, it talks about Roland making them a cotet as a poison, which I think is really interesting. Absolutely. But two, it defines what a cotet is. They are one. And I don't think halfway through this book, Callahan's one with them. So I'd say, no, he's not cotet yet. Sure. He's not one with them. Right. Could he be by the end of this? Possibly. Yes. There's a lot of, there are a lot of parallels between their stories. Is the meeting of Per Callahan, a priest from New York, from another Stephen King book, The Force of Ka, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Ka has come like a motherfucking wind, right. all right? And it has pushed Callahan and Roland's Cotet together. But right now, 58% of the way through, I don't think he's Cotet. Yeah, fair enough. Now- could you argue otherwise? Sure. I just don't think they are clearly one. No, I agree with you. I, I, I am in 100% agreement. And we're going to continue this conversation right after this word from the sponsor of the Wheel of Ka. Let's talk a little bit about Lady Riza. Yeah, let's. Um, one thing that I thought was just really cool I remember when reading the draw, drawing of the three 
And I made my first Wolves of the Kala note while reading Drawing of the Three, um, and where we get to know Odetta Holmes. And Odetta Holmes and Detta Walker, they steal and smash this blue four special plate. Right. And it is an important plate. I didn't even know what a four special plate was. Essentially, it's like a nice china plate. Yeah, it's like a serving dish. Absolutely. It's like a really nice plate. And Detta takes this plate and smashes it, mm. which is the first sort of foreshadow of the Lady Zoriza. So we come to know about Grey Dick and Lady Riza, who kills Grey Dick with a plate that she flings. She pretends to be his ally after he kills her father, and she gets her bloody revenge. Well, yeah, I mean, she invites him over for dinner and is like, "Listen, we're gonna be we're gonna eat dinner naked together." And he, they don't think about you know all of the weapons have been taken, all all, all the ammunition's been taken. They don't think about the plates. Yep. And in it, I think there's a few things to call out. One, we have talked previously in Wheel of Ka that Stephen King doesn't necessarily do justice in particular to Susanna as a character. Right. And that there sometimes is an implicit male bias. Much of this book is written by the male gaze mm -hmm. for the male gaze. Mm -hmm. And I really do appreciate the idea that the most powerful warriors in the Kala thus far that we have met it's not the ranchers. It's not the men. No. It's this network of women who do things like they cook for banquets. They right. put on weddings. Right. They tend for sick. And they hang out and they practice throwing these razor sharp metal plates mm -hmm. to pinpoint fucking accuracy. Right. Right. And well, they're caretakers of the town and of the Kala. They care for the community. And part of that caring is that if, if you come in and you invade, we'll fucking kill you. We will, we will <laughs> throw the plate. And we get the story from, um, you know, Grandpere Jaffords, where he talks about their stand with the wolves. And it was the Lady Oriza plate thrower who actually kills the wolf. Right, right. It's All, his young friend. And they yeah. were like 19. Yes, they were 19. Interesting. Very important number. Right, right. Which we, should, we will be talking about later. Oh, yeah. But I really enjoy the idea that there's this network of women in Calabrin Sturgis that they have this amazing mythic background and this amazing mythic lore and that they do all of this demonstrable good to the community through this network. This network right. helps facilitate trade to the other Calas right. because they all talk to each other. Well, it's not, just a, it's not just a throwaway bullshit role, which is nice. You know, they are the leaders of this town. They are... And... and, and you wouldn't know it, but but there is an understanding in the Kala that these women are in, are are in control, and there are like four or five plate throwers that you get the sense halfway through this book, Roland realizes will be instrumental in the battle. Right, he says, of all of the people that can throw the plates well, meet me. Do not bring your husbands at this date and at this time, and we're all going to talk and we're going to discuss. And you know that Roland is thinking, how am I going to use these plates? Oh, yeah. Because they may help very well turn the tide. Well, because we know that they can damage the masks that the wolves wear, which are very similar to the satellite disc that was on the top of Shardik's head. So there's this whole central positronics thing that comes back around, too, where they're involved with the wolves. And then, you know. Yep. And I am really just, I appreciated so much this backstory, 
the fact that we get this goddess slash legend. Yeah, it's a fucking, it's a clutch tale. It's crazy. It's very, very cool. It's intense. And we get this tale in the middle of meeting the Eisenhowers. Eisenhowers or Eisenhearts? I'm blanking. Eisenhearts. Eisenhearts, yeah. And meeting the Eisenhearts and that we get to see Lady Eisenhart throw the plate so true that she splits a potato in half. And I'm really interested in seeing where this is going and how that these plates will be instrumental because you know they're going to be instrumental. And I absolutely think Stephen King's like, I've got to make the women folk in Calabrin Sturges really matter in this narrative. Right. They can't just Well, be- because the men suck. They also suck in this town. They all argue. Everyone, I mean, they're farmers. That's the other thing to think about. Like, most of the people here are farmers. They're not warriors, except for this group of women, the four or five women in each of the different calas. You know, but the, but the men are just, the men are like vanilla ice cream. Like, they're just boring. You know what I mean? And they quabble. And it's like the, the guy who has the biggest farm is the one who has the most say. But not really. It's this group of women who who are who are running things. Abso- badass. Yeah, absolutely. And also the men, a lot of these men are cowards. Oh, yeah. And and a I by omission. And I hate to say that word because it's a very powerful word. Sure. And it's inherently demasculating. Mm. But you gotta believe, like, if your town is being attacked once a generation and you know when the attack is coming, and you didn't at all train any warriors? No. I mean, there to are men. Fight in, them? Come right? on. And the other thing is, too, there are men in this group who are like, well, you know what we could do? We could just give them all up. We could just give all the kids up and then we'll all live. Are you fucking kidding me? Why don't we just burn the town and move on? Right. Like, that's it. insane. Insane. Thankfully, in the cow, there were people who, who had half a brain. Yeah, and you know what? When we come back to, I know we want to talk specifically about Calabrin Sturgis, but when you have institutionalized oppression, where you have an outside force that has been and has been generationally suppressing and hurting and maiming and stealing the children, uh, eventually it becomes normal. And so many of the men are just arguing like, hey, this is normal. It's awful, but we get through it. We're always going to get through it. And this entire time that this has been happening, they've had these networks of expert disc throwers who could probably fight. And just for a little bit of background for listeners is that when we talk about them quabbling about children is that there are twins within the Kala and one of the two twins is taken by the wolves. The wolves come and take one of the set of twins. Every generation. Every generation. So there's this entire town who's trying this time to fend them off and not take any of the children, which is like, uh, fucking duh. They're kids. Absolutely. They're your future. I don't know. I get so mad sometimes at the the people of Calibre and Sturgis, especially in the first, like, 200 pages of the book because they're so nearsighted and so afraid. That like they're just willing to give children up to save what they have. Sound like uh, sound like anything you've heard of before? I mean, there's definitely a, an implicit social critique there. Yeah. What happens when the good people of a community are not willing to fight for that community? And when that happens, are they still good people? Mm. When it comes to the the Kala that says, you know what? Once a generation, we still have half of the children. 
And what what T and Jafford says in the town hall, which I think is a really interesting point, is he describes the Kala as a tree. And he talks about what happens when a tree is unwell, where one piece of it might not be well, another piece of it might not be well, but eventually over time, the tree just becomes hollow. And he describes the taking of the children in that terms. It's like a branch at a time, this right. tree is slowly dying, the right. tree being the Kala. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty beautiful speech. And, and that's within their own little odd form of democracy with the feather where they're passing the feather around and... You know, if they can get enough people to meet, they have town meetings, which I think is really interesting. It really is. And in that respect, I think that he is right. It is also, though, like, I know that we're calling them cowards, and I know that that word is apt. At the same time, it's hard to ask an ordinary citizen to also become a warrior. Oh, sure. Sure. And I don't I don't disagree with you there. It's just that that mentality of, I mean, I feel like if it were me... You know, if I'm going to protect my community, I'm going to do literally whatever I, I can do. But then again, push come to shove. I don't know. We I don't say, know. I've, I've never been there. We say that in the comfort of a podcast. Studio. Exactly. <laughs> in front of the microphone. I'm, I'm a big tough guy. But the truth is, I, you're right. I don't know. And at the end of at the end of the day, horrible injustices happen all the time. Most of us just stand by and let it happen. It's true. It's true. You know, most of us do. Right. Most of us just walk right on by. And one of the aspects of the Caleb, which is such an integral, interesting, integrated, thriving community. Right. That it's so refreshing to see a group of people in this world, the world of Roland, that aren't just a bunch of savages or relics. No, they actually work together. Working. They, they've built thriving. a society. They're, they're, they're growing food. They have children. Right. Most of Midworld, there are no children. Are, are barren, right? Yeah. yeah so right. there are children. And not not only are there children, everybody is so fucking fertile. There are twins and everywhere. We will say, though, it is an end world. So it, 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 as, it is at the very edge of the world that is still surviving. And I think that's a very interesting comment. It is. You, you know, and that, and that in world and Midworld has moved on. To me, end world with all of the twins that represents this like insane hyper fertility. The tower is trying to repopulate the world with good people. Mm. It wants these communities to thrive. It wants there to be more people in the next generation than there were in the current. And in comes this perverse force called the wolves to ensure that's impossible to make sure that the population stays flat to make sure that you can never have more people, that life cannot grow. The wolves come to life negate. They are the vampires suckling on the Kala, right? Mm-hmm. They are they, they, These are the, the agents of evil that are trying to deter, destroy, and crumble the Dark Tower, which is, I think, is what's different about this book about the Tower than previous. We get the sense there's an inter-multidimensional force mm-hmm. trying to take down the Tower. We have the low men, working to avenge the vampires. Right. Right. And now we have the wolves working to suppress the population of the Kala. Well, the closer that we get to the tower, the more we realize how in danger the tower is exactly. of, of being destroyed. And we totally get the sense the wolves are intimately linked in this narrative that there are agents trying to destroy the tower beyond just the man in black, beyond just Walter and Martin who have been the nemesis of the gunslinger, that it's bigger than just Roland. Mm-hmm. 
that there are these civilizations that hang in the balance. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, can we talk about, I want to talk a little bit about how King uses storytelling within the story. Oh yeah. Because this is the first time I think it, it really works very well. I agree. I agree. So we have, we have Per Callahan. He tells a story which takes us into another story. We have the story of Lady Oriza. And then we have the story that Grandpere tells when they stood against the wolves. All three instances in the first half of this book, you get the sense that the character telling the story and then the people listening to the story actually get transported into that. Absolutely. You yeah. get the sense. We go Todash. We go Todash. Like Eddie goes Todash listening to Grandpere. Oh, Roland yeah. goes Todash listening to Pear Callahan. And then hearing the story of Lady Oriza, we all just go into it. I think King is trying to tell us there's so much power in storytelling to transport us into another place that that we are in this sort of meta story on story that like the intellectual glue that keeps the tower together is storytelling. Well, and this is the first time that we really start to get meta, right? We really start to understand that this world is intertwined in a lot of different things. And and to me, it's the first, it's the first book where I start to think, especially reading it the second time around, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, King is interweaving his brain around the tower. His brain is the Dark Tower. And everything, every piece, every character, everything that comes in and out of Stephen King's life, because art is an imitation of life. My mentor said that years ago, and life is an imitation of art, art is an imitation of life. It's the same thing. They're one and the same. And I think with Stephen King, and he, he, he said this in interviews, that those that the dark tower is connected to everything that he does. And I would almost, I would almost bet that if Stephen King were a religious man, because I don't, I don't think he is, he would, he would say that the tower is probably the thing that he worships most. Interesting. I love all of those points. Yeah. I want to kind of pick out some things that just really resonated. One, sure. uh, who's your mentor? Oh, oh, it's uh, my acting teacher from one of my acting teachers from college. His name's Ernie Loso. Great. I mean, yeah. you just, you threw out the yeah. mentor and I'm like, oh, oh yeah. I don't know who that is. Yeah. 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 Sophomore yeah. acting teacher. Yeah. And I do agree that like the tower at the nexus of the universe and storytelling is what spins that axle. Yeah. And Stephen King being the storyteller, he is spinning the axle of the tower. Well, and you know, I mean, think about, think about the, you know, the use of riddles in, in court and Roland's time and, and that they, you know, that we would, it was a sporting event to throw riddles at each other. And the idea of who could tell the better story, who could tell the better riddle. I mean, in all of the characters, the things that I love most are their ability to transport me into their world, to feel like Eddie in 1972, to feel like Odetta and Detta Holmes in the fifties to feel Jake in the sixties in his little Piper school outfit to transform me to those places. And then once it all becomes this big stew of story, now the way that we Todash out of the Cotet is with other characters like Per Callahan, Lady Oriza. So I think we're getting some similar things that we've read and we've heard and we've seen earlier in the books when we were learning about the Cotet and when we, the readers, were becoming a part of the Cotet. Now we're viewing everything from the Cotet. So the people who are coming in and telling their stories, shit's starting to get real. Time's starting to 
is moving quick. And I think that's another reason why we're transported and we feel these stories like, whoa, these are really vivid in a short amount of time. I mean, in 20 pages, 30 pages, you, you've heard an ent- entire fucking story of a person's life up right. to this point. Yep. It's like an admission that the power of a storytelling to create a world and our ability to walk into the world breathes a level of life to that story that exists beyond the narrative. It literally, for example, there's a story called Salem's Lot. Stephen King created it. It has a character called Father Callahan. And that character has a life outside of that story that continues that then integrates into Wolves of the Kala. And the idea that I think King is trying to wrestle with with concepts like Todash and Black 13 and the Tower is that these boundaries between what we think is real and what we think is not are flimsy at best. They they shimmer they, they what do we flayed. know anyway? What do we know? What do we actually know anyway? And, and, and not necessarily in like a hyper-rationalistic way that we view the world. Like a hyper-rationalist will say, like, where's the evidence? And I think there's, there's value to looking at the world that way. I tend to look at the world that way myself. But is the world of Roland the one in which... I can walk into, you can walk into, our children can walk into, our children's children can walk into and see this character role and interact with it. How is that world more or less real than our own? And how is the world of King Arthur's world more or less real than our own, considering that there's so much King Arthur in the Dark Tower? There's something real about our storytelling and it may not be real in the way that it's real that I'm doing a podcast right now, but there's a reality to it that exists beyond right. our own mortal flesh and blood. Because it's the way that humans preserve our history, good, bad, and ugly. The way that, the way that we're going to be remembered, well, you know, when the fucking earth is gone, is through our stories. Yep. I mean, that's... that's you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, some of the greatest things I still think personally, the greatest thing humans have ever given the world is music. But storytelling is, is an equal part of that. A song is, you know, melody and, 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 and words and rhythm. You know, if you ask a classicist what it was like to live in archaic Greece, the first place they go to is Homer. And Homer, who wrote down the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were songs. Mm-hmm. meant to be sung mm-hmm. poetry sung out loud by a singer by a poet who just took the who took these like songs that everyone was singing and just decided to put them down and write them down and hence the tradition of writing down literature as we know it was born in archaic greece and i do think we are seeing king comment on the power of that the ability for those stories to last and to change at one point eddie looks at Roland and goes, man, we're all 19. Meaning that we're in a story. He tells Roland, this is weird. We're on this quest for the tower. And suddenly we have this town that needs to be saved. This is all gone fucking 19, man. This is all crazy. Like I'm living in a fairy tale. (laughs) Like you better not fuck up because like, what is this reality that you're now in? And he actually becomes aware briefly that he is a character in a story. Well, and this is the first time we're going to start to see that, right? And I remember, you know, I picked up on it much easier the second time around reading it. I'm, I'm more okay with how meta things start to get because I'm starting to understand the exact concept we just talked about. 
Where the first time yep. you're starting, you're, you know, you're trying to intake all of this information and like, well, where are we? When are we? What the fuck is happening? I just ate a, a thing called a popkin that was like a muffin ball and it, it was delicious <laughs> and it was fried. And then all of a sudden it, ta- it takes me to, you know, I do wish Stephen King were a little bit lo- more like George R.R. R. Martin in that he could have explained how delicious those muffin balls were. But I digress. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, the the greatest weakness of the Dark Tower the first time around for me was that it felt like intellectual imaginary whiplash. Absolutely. There's so much happening. It makes you feel like, wait, I look, I I know I'm a I know I'm an intelligent person. Like I know I'm a smart person. But, but am I? Yeah. <laughs> well, because where because exactly. of, uh, where? When? What? Wait. I'm a college-educated person, and now I'm in a Cala? What's a Cala? I have a degree in acting. I'm supposed to understand plot and how to break down character. And when the fuck are we? When? Where? You know, another thing that we get confirmation of in this with Cala's backstory is how multiverse the multiverse is. Absolutely. And that he gets to exist in almost like a permanent toe-dash space. And you where know, his money changes. He also, he also of, of every character... Is the person who goes through that process easiest? It's like he doesn't care. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I've I've traveled through worlds. I mean, it's just I'm an alcoholic. Like I'm I'm probably drunk through most of it, but he just accepts that he's traveling through time and space with with ease. Right. I guess after you get your faith crushed by a vampire <laughs> and you're on the hobo train to yeah, alcoholism. Right. On the midnight train to Memphis. Whether it's uh, Alexander Hamilton or Teddy Roosevelt on sure. your $10 bill seems to not matter yeah, as much. I guess not. I guess yeah. not. <laughs> and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Callahan is one of the reasons I love this book. Sure. And I'm really. Oh, I think you connect to him a, a lot. There's a lot that I'm trying to wrestle through and understand in Callahan's character. First time around, I just took it as a given. I loved that character. This time around, I'm really trying to dig into the why. Why do I connect to this character? Why do I think he's so central to making this book work? And I'm really thinking about it. I think by the time we're done with the book, I'll have more to say on it. Um, But I do want to hear from other Wheel of Ka fans out there. What do you think of Pear Callahan? I think he is the best character introduced in this book and is, dare say, one of the best characters of the whole series. I really do. Sure, sure. I'm totally into he the He is a pair. great character. There's no, there's no denying that at all. I mean, he's compelling. He's got, a, he's got an incredible story. It's also nice for people who are Stephen King fans. to. It's a bit of a homecoming. You know, because Salem's Lot is also one of his most successful books. I mean, it's, it, I believe there's like a 30-year difference. So Callahan just pops up like 30 years later in, in, the, in 2004 in this book, which I think is pretty cool. You know, when I first read it, I didn't know who Pear Callahan was or from Salem's Lot. And I didn't really realize that until gearing up for the uh, podcast that this was a character from another book and putting myself on blast. I'm very new to Stephen King. The oh. Dark Tower is my entry point into Stephen King oh, as a me writer. too. You know, me too. It's the first thing I've really read of his that I've really loved and has made me go back and want to listen to more. And um, I do think that, yeah, I'm sure that that was a nod to a lot of fans oh, sure. to put him in here, I, which I think is great. But I also think we're at the we're at the very first point where this novel series is about to get 
very deep into the meta-analysis of narrative as a whole. And and specifically Stephen King's narrative. And he's deconstructing and constructing simultaneously, and right. that is fucking amazing. I mean, we're going to get to pieces where he's dealing with his own writer's block, he's dealing with his own mental blocks with things. And so I think now that we're learning that how interconnected Stephen King's world is directly to the Dark Tower... And and don't get me wrong, I don't think that Pear Callahan is just a nod. He's incredibly important. But it's just it 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 was fun to read that and go, oh yeah, oh, okay. I see. I now I start to see where Stephen King's world is blending because again, you mentioned earlier he gets mentioned for the first time in this book, and we're like, wait, what? Yep. Yeah. When they're going toe dash at yeah. Calvin Towers bookstore, Stephen King's name is on the like book meal of the day. It's awesome. It's the first mention that Stephen King is part of this. And um, it, I love this book series. So I did want to talk a little bit more. I know we're pushing up on time about the Cala itself. We hit a lot of the points going through sure. here, but things that I just really like in end world on the verge of the Thunderclap, the next barren wasteland before the tower, presumably are these thriving communities called Kalas. They, they exist within this crescent, which you get this shape that they are kind of forming a half moon. Um, and the, the, they talk about trading along the crescent, which I think is a harken back to the fertile crescent, the very first human civilizations in what is the ancient Near East, now the, called the Middle East. And I find it remarkable that Calabrin Sturges has a functioning direct democracy yeah, sure. in that they call a meeting, everyone comes, everyone has a system by holding a feather that they can speak, and they all must decide unanimously upon a policy before a policy can be put in place. And I want to pose this to you. We've seen no civilization in Roland's world up until this point. The closest is River Crossing, which is just a dying out, like, you know, elder worshiping society. Right. That or Gilead, the mentions of Gilead. Yes, but, we've gone backwards. Which is not a democracy. Gilead. Yes, but we've seen Gilead. Right. But Gilead is gone and been right. gone for the main it's events of this, of this um, series. And now, I mean, yeah, Gilead's a military dictatorship yeah. is really what it is. Sure, yeah. You know, but now we get to this Kala, this functioning community of farmers who apparently have an abundance of food. They have an abundance of children and they have a functioning direct democratic system. What do you think that means? Does that, or does it mean anything at all? I do think it means something. I think that this is life's final stop in this world, that this is it. This is end world. This is the last chance for humans to get it right before the tower crumbles. And so it's very primitive and it's very early. And it's, I mean, I mean, you know, you have a feather to speak and people respect that. And I think there's this last bit of energy where the humans in this, in this Kala are like, you know what, we're going to make it work. And by the skin of our teeth, we're going to make it work however we need to do it. And so to me, this is, this is the last stop. And I think that's why Roland chooses to fight. He has to. He's morally bound. He's the last gunslinger. They are of the white. They have he to. has to defend it. But I think he wants to because this is the last bit of humanity. Yeah, we see Roland in a town in the first book and he slaughters everyone. Everybody. 
A hundred percent of them. 45 people. And just slaughters this last town. Unbelievable. And one thing that I'm just trying to meditate on, and I don't know if King is saying this or not, and I agree with everything you said, and maybe this is what I'm saying about it, is that as long as there are people, there will be LUDs, right? There will be grays and pubes tearing each other apart. There'll be brutal bullies controlling people like a sociopath, and there'll be idiots killing each other at the sound of a drum, which is just someone hitting play on a play button on a speaker system. But there'll also be callas. There'll also be places of peace and plenty where there is not war, where people will genuinely agree. Well, they'll have civilized debate and that that debate will mean something that people will think about it. And some people like the Eisenhart's will change their minds potentially about that debate. People will be able to listen to reason and people will be able to live harmoniously, even if they live harmoniously under threat of constant invasion. And think of it this way. If the tower, I know at the very beginning of this episode, I said that it reminded me of a nightmare, but we've also talked about the tower wanting balance. And if the tower wants all things to be balanced, then balance includes if we're going to live in the world of duality, good and evil yeah, and war and peace. And so you're right. There are going to be places of war and destruction where we don't know what to do with it. I mean, there was plenty of war and destruction in Gilead in a place where people prospered. What makes the Kala any different? You would think on the verge of thunderclap under the threat of wolves, these societies would collapse. And it's so goddamn optimistic that they don't, that they thrive that they are able to have a direct democratic system loose and you called it primitive. I agree with that term. Yeah. Loose and primitive and unfunctional in many ways compared to to us right now. But it's something. But it works. And it, it does. For a small group of farmers willing to try to figure out how to live together in peace, they figured that shit out. Which is why I think, even though I just said it, I think it's, it, it cheapens the quartet by saying that they have to because they're the line of the white. Like, yes, they have to, right? And Roland says that, but I think he chooses to save the Kala because he sees that. Because he sees that they're fighting. They're willing to live, even though they're lost. And, and I mean, if it were up to the Manny, we'd be giving everybody up and burn the fucking town down, right? Which is insane. You know, that's a good point because Roland, when talking to Pear, when he first meets Pear Callahan on the road to the Kala, says, I don't care what the town folks say. I'll defend it or not. And as soon as he meets the town, he realizes, oh, they need a little coaxing. Yeah. They're worth saving. And he says, I'll defend it if it's worth defending. And he goes, you know what? I'm not going to ask them all three questions. I'll ask them two. I realize I do have to get them on my side. It is worth defending, and I do need to play the Cala Brinsturge's politics in order for this to work. And he's willing and able because he's making the choice to defend them and says, until they recognize that they can, they need to defend themselves until they're ready to say gunslingers, will you help us fight? I'm going to win their hearts and minds by dancing, by fucking dancing, by dancing. The Kamala, the most, the one of the most beautiful moments in this. And I know we're over, but we have to mention this. Let's Roland, we've barely talked about Roland. I, I know Roland dances this Kamala. Now I call it the Kamala. You call it the Kamala, which I think is fun. We said it the other way. I call it the oh, Kamala. Right. You call it the Kamala. 
<laughs> one of the best parts about reading this with you is how differently we, we pronounce, pronounce the words. Yeah, it's great. And 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 so, you know, we've, we've got this whole traditional dance where Roland is basically doing like a jig and 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 flailing his feet and doing this crazy Irish dance where he's stomping on the floor and it starts off very slowly and demure and then it gets it gets so fast that people say that his feet are blinded that they can no longer see it and he's laughing and 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 Roland is living his best motherfucking life and it's one of the most beautiful moments because you realize again like up until this point we knew that Roland was human because he laughed <laughs> because he literally laughed and now he's making jokes and he's dancing and and bringing back the things of his youth and the and the stories that he remembers and that he connects to that he can bring to these people to help them rise up stand against the oppression they need to stand against and literally fucking fight for themselves i love that and i also think we Another way to look at the Kamala, it's a it is a political act that he does. Yes. It is deliberate. It is showing that gunslingers were not just warriors, they were also diplomats. Yes. He has to ask three questions. And if they answer yes to all three, the gunslingers will defend them with the wolves. I mean, in, he in, asks two of them and then dances. And saves the third one. And Eddie's like, oh, he's gonna ask the third one. Uh he doesn't. And and it's so interesting because you bring up the they are diplomats. They're almost diplomats first. Absolutely. They right. kill when they have to. I would like to read a quote here towards the end. And this is it's early in the book, and Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi and Roland are all telling each other fairy tales. Mm. And uh, they're discussing if fairy tales could be essentially multi-genred. And Eddie says, quote, but when it comes to entertainment, we do tend to stick with one flavor at a time and don't let any one thing touch another thing on your plate. Now, it sounds kind of boring when you put it that way. And then Roland says, how many of these fairy tales would you say there are? Without hesitation and certainly no collusion, Eddie, Susanna and Jake also all say at the same time the exact word, 19. The reason I want to call that quote out is because I think Eddie, and through King through Eddie is saying that we do like to stick within our genres and our lanes, and the Dark Tower is breaking down those borders. It's breaking down those lanes. It's making all of these different genres one we do tend to stick to one flavor at the time and we don't let any of the food on our plate touch the other foods. And I just think one of the lessons that I'm learning from this book is man, let that shit meld. There's no reason the multiverse time traveling cowboy Western fantasy epic that involves knights who shoot guns can't be the best book series I've ever read. And I just love what this book is doing in its first half. Yeah, man, that's so well said. I love how much you love this book. I do. Yeah. And I do think we should talk about 19, but next time. Yes, I do think understanding the importance of 19, is it arbitrary? Does it matter? I've been meditating on that a lot. So listeners, meditate on that. And if you're listening to this, get on Twitter and tell us what you think the significance of the number 19 is. Yeah. We would love to hear from you. 
And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Before we leave, I just want to say to all of the fellow travelers on the path of the beam, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. 